Let me pray for our time and we will look at Luke 15. Father, thank you for um, your grace and your mercy that you've shown us through your son. And this time of year, we, we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are, we are so grateful for the redemption that we have through Jesus. Uh, Father, it is such a, a good news story and help us to, uh, to share that, that, that wonderful story with others through this holiday season. And I uh, pray that you'd guide our time now as we study Luke 15, uh, that it would glorify you and sanctify us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Luke 15, so we're not going to have the Sunday school class the next couple of weeks on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And then Fred's going to teach something in January. It's a mystery. mystery. It's a mystery what he's going to teach. But I'm taking January off from teaching, and he's going to teach. And then we'll pick back up in Luke um, in February. So we're going to finish it, just not right away. Uh, Luke 15, Luke 15 is um, around the middle of the book, but it, it's, it's a great passage. Jesus is teaching, and he started teaching in parables. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a, fun, a fun set of parables this morning that hopefully you'll, you'll find as enlightening as I did as I prepared for this. So we're going to see his audience is a mixed audience. He's going to have both the, the religious leaders and, and his disciples, but also these, these others, the tax collectors and sinners. So, so he's, he's got a, a wide audience here, and he's going to teach in parables. And as, as Ken has been emphasizing on, on Sunday mornings, he taught in parables to kind of, it's to to withhold the truth from some that were rejecting him, but, but then to reveal truth to others. So it's, it's a, mixed, um, a mixed audience that he's preaching to, and, and uh, we'll see that. He starts out, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So why is this a surprising thing? How would these tax collectors and sinners, how were they being treated by the, the religious leaders? Yeah, so they were being chastised, outcast. You know, they were being looked down upon by the religious leaders. And, and Jesus would somewhat be... You know, identified with that group because he was a Jewish teacher. So what would the natural response from the tax collectors and sinners would be to reject him because of the influence of the other religious leaders? So it's noteworthy that they're drawing near to him the condemnation for these sinners would, would lead them to, to 
categorize religious leaders as hypocrites. But Jesus had built their trust. Um, he condemned the legalism of the, the Jewish leaders. And then he strives to meet the physical and spiritual needs of these common people, the sinners. This last statement, I think, is really important. The first step in ministering to someone is to build a trusting relationship with them. Until we build a relationship, in fact, the old saying is, they're not going to care what you know until they know that you care. If you don't have a, a relationship with someone and you try to share the gospel with them, it's likely to fall on deaf ears. So you have to build a relationship before you can evangelize successfully. So moving on, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So why are they critical of Jesus? Is he violating Scripture? He's violating their rules, right? So it's, it's these man-made rules. They're not following their, the legalistic rules that these Pharisees and scribes had. Now, legalism seeks to you know, exert control over someone to suppress their freedom, and then promote your own self-righteousness. So that's what you see what, the, what these leaders are doing. They're critical of Jesus because he's associating with those that they deem to be lower class people. They're really promoting righteousness by works rather than faith. So then he, he starts out with parables. There'll be three that we cover today. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So how would you describe this parable that Jesus uses? Remember, he's talking to this mixed audience of these tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, and I'm sure his disciples were there as well. So he's got this, this parable of the good shepherd, basically. He's illustrating how God values individuals. You see, the shepherd was willing to go after the one lost sheep, and then he rejoices when it's found. 
Um, Jesus points out that there's rejoicing in heaven for one individual who repents. And he says it's greater than the 99 righteous. Now, we all know that elsewhere in Scripture, there's none that are righteous on our own. So the 99 righteous is, okay, we're all in need of repentance. So they, they're not, you know, it's not like there are 99 righteous. This really shows that salvation is achieved one person at a time. And God pursues the lost. God pursues those that are wayward. He pursued each one of us with this gospel message. Then he had another parable. It says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of of God over one sinner who repents. So he has a second parable. So from other translations, it's probably the silver coin is probably a drachma. And that's about a day's wage. So it would be, you know, at least equivalent to a $100 bill or something like that. So it's not a trivial amount of money. So it's a fair amount of money. Um, She's lost one out of 10 and she diligently searches for it. And when she finds it, she throws a celebration. Um, what's the main point? It's similar to the shepherd one, right? In that God values things that are lost. He values that in that one little individual who's lost. And he seeks to reach those that are lost. He searches for them. He pursues them. He looks for them. The focus is on the one that is lost, not on the nine other coins. God pursues the wayward. So how would this impact his audience? His audience included these tax collectors and sinners, as well as the religious leaders and probably the disciples. So these tax collectors and sinners, they should recognize that, okay, God is pursuing me. I'm the lost one that God is pursuing. So they should have... It should have showed them how God values people Even those who were lost or wayward, they may have felt abandoned by God um, because the the religious leaders probably had ostracized them. So so they did not feel like they were a part of God's family. But Jesus is telling them that 
God treasures even the lost. And then the joy that he mentions over the repentance should encourage them to, okay, I have an opportunity to come back to him and he'll accept me. In fact, he'll accept me with joy. So they, they should have, have motivated his audience to receive faith. Then the third story, which is longer and we're going to spend more time on, says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. So what's the beginning scene here? This is the story of, it's always called the story of the prodigal son, right? But there's actually two sons. There's not just one. And as we're going to see, they're both rebellious in a way. So this begins with this man's got two sons and the younger one asked for his inheritance. When is an inheritance normally given? When someone dies. When someone dies. So he's basically saying, well, I kind of wish you were dead or I'm not concerned about you. I value your possessions more than I do you. It's a pretty insulting thing to ask your dad for the inheritance before he's died. Um, the father, though, the father complies with the request. In fact, there's no there's no mention of any rebuke of his son or anything. He just like, okay, he divides it. Um, the property likely was divided between the sons and himself, but we don't really know for sure how it was divided. And that's probably not significant to the story either. So this younger son's request conveys that you know, as we mentioned, inheritance is when you die. He's requesting his inheritance, expressing that desire that is, his dad, just go ahead and die. You know, we don't even have any evidence that the dad is elderly or ill. So he could have been a healthy 40 or 50 year old for all we know. And there's no mention that he rebukes his younger son. He just complies with the request. Moving on, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he gets this newfound wealth and lives it up basically. Um, 
He gathered his belongings and left town. He goes far away and lived it up. There's a, this is a rebellious or prodigal action. That's where the, the name prodigal comes from, is his action, how his rebellion was acted out. And how's his lifestyle described? ESV says reckless. Um, other translations have wild, loose, or extravagant living. Um, it's, it's evident he wasted his money. He's using his money to fuel his rebellion. Um, there's an insinuation of immorality, although it's not explicitly described. And that'll come up later on with, when we see the older brother's response. It's, it's insinuated. But then the, the story gets a little more difficult for him. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So how did, how did this out, the younger son, fare here? Coincidentally, when his money runs out, there's a severe famine. So if you believe in coincidences. But what else do we learn? Where is he at? What type of country is it? It's probably Gentile because he's feeding pigs. I mean, Jews wouldn't have pigs running around. Um, Samaritans would, but and Gentiles would. Um, A famine would be a desperate time. People could starve to death. And this is not just a, your typical famine. It's, it's described as a severe famine. So it, it's a serious time. Now, one thing to remember, the, these religious leaders that are in the audience, they would see this as, ah, see, God has, is zapping him because of his sin. That's, they, they looked at, at hard circumstances as typically a consequence from sin. So they would have been, ha, he's getting what he deserves, is, is the way they would view this. This is a judgment from God. So to survive, he... He takes this job that any righteous Jew would not do. You know, he's, he's feeding pigs. The pods are likely, they're called carob pods. They're really, they're barely edible even for an animal, much less a person. And I think it's noteworthy that no one gave him anything. So nobody is reaching out to help him, perhaps because this, the severity of the famine, 
or because he was a foreigner. We don't really know, but he's not getting any help. So his situation is not improving at all. Verse 17 says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So what drove him to return home? First of all, what, what didn't drive him to return home? He ran out of money. Uh, that, didn't, that just drove him to seek work. Um, he got hungry, so he, you know, he... He's trying to eat the, the pig food. Um, it wasn't guilt from his, you know, whatever immorality he'd been involved in. The humiliation of feeding pigs. No, it wasn't any of that. He recognized that his situation was worse than anything back home. I can go home and be the lowest servant for my dad and I'll have a better life than I have now. So what do we see from his planned speech? He says, first, I'm going to tell him, I've sinned against heaven and before you. So he's confessing that he was wrong both to his dad and to God. And then he's going to, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Well, when he requested his dad's inheritance, he basically gave up his relationship with his dad. And then he, he just wants to be a, a servant for his dad. That's his, his only request is to be treated like one of the hired servants. So when it says he came to himself, it's like he returned to his senses. And going back to his father is the final step of repentance. See, we've talked about this a little before, but repentance includes a change of, of mind. So you change what your thinking is. It's like, okay, I wish I hadn't done that. In this case, he's like, you know, I was foolish to request that inheritance and run away from home. And then it's a change of heart. It's like you, you really have a, a hatred for what you've done. I, I really don't want to wish I hadn't done that. It was wrong against God and my father. And it's, it leads to a change in action. 
Well, the action was to leave that country and go back home. So it, it shows his repentance is genuine. So he did, he did just that. It says he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If my son ran away from home and blew his inheritance, when he came back home, I would be so tempted to say, I told you so. You've acted foolishly, and now you're facing the consequences for what you've done. I'd, I'd have given him the riot act. That's not what the father does. Jesus is showing us the grace that God has for mankind. God has so much more grace than we show ourselves. His father doesn't treat him the way most in, in our culture would. Um, he's watching for his return. And then he runs to meet him, embracing him warmly and kissing him. It's undignified in their culture to run towards somebody. It was, it was not what a man normally did his response is filled with compassion not disapproval not judgment in fact the fact that his son returns is enough proof for him that his son has repented so he treats him with mercy and immediate acceptance Well, then the, the son starts in his speech. But he didn't even make it through the whole thing, did he? In fact, the last part was he was going to request that his father treat him like one of the hired servants. He never got to that point. And um, I think his father interrupted him. He confesses his sin. He admits he's no longer to be called his son. But then the father stops him at that point. And, and in verse 22, we see, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So what are the, what's the significance of the things that he gives his son? 
So the best robe, the best robe is, that's a special robe. And it's saved for guest of honor. I can't help but think of the the coat of many colors that Joseph had was probably a similar type thing. So he's he's showing this this warm acceptance of his son. He's honoring him with the best robe. Well, then what about the ring? So the the ring is a it was used for for business transactions. It's almost like today giving someone a credit card. It, it's it's authorizing them to 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 conduct business on your behalf. Um, he's restoring the authority of a son to this young man. What about sandals? He probably came home barefooted. And the lack of sandals or shoes is a sign of poverty. So it's really showing that this young man was in in a bad way. It shows the depth of his poverty. He didn't have much to eat. He didn't even have shoes on his feet. So his dad is providing sandals or shoes for him. So what about the feast? So the fattened calf is something that's saved for a special occasion. This was a special occasion for the dad. My my son is home. That which was was lost is found. That which I thought was dead is alive. So it's just like the prior two stories. The celebration over the, the sheep that had been lost and was found and the coin that was lost and was found. Now it's a celebration for the son that was lost and is now found. And it's showing us how God values individuals. He celebrates when when a lost person comes to faith in Christ. That should be the end of the story, but it's not. There's, There's another son. And we're going to have lessons from him as well. Now this, his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So what had the older brother been doing? He'd been doing probably what his father wanted him to do, right? He'd been working in the field, 
with the hired help, he's probably managing the crew, so to speak. Um, he's doing what the father had asked him to do. When he hears the celebration, he's like, what is going on? So he calls a servant to find out, why are they throwing a party? The servant responds to factually, oh, your brother came home, so your dad threw a party. A celebration. Then we see his response. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. How did he respond and and how does that contrast to how he should have responded? Since he got angry, right? He should have responded like his dad did, right? He should have been happy that his brother was home, that had repented. But instead, he's angry. In fact, it says he refuses to join the celebration. Um, He's basically telling his father, I don't approve of the mercy that you've shown your younger son. You were wrong. You should have judged him harshly. Instead, you have shown him mercy. He should have done the opposite. He should have trusted his father's judgment and joined in the celebration. He thought he had more wisdom than his father. You think you know this kid has repented. No, he's not. You need to judge him harshly. This mercy you're showing him is wrong. He deserves justice. How did the father respond to his anger? He did the exact thing he did for his other son. He reached out to him. He pursues this older son. It says, this translation says he entreated him. Others say he actually begged him to come join the celebration. When he learned this older son is outside, he pleads with him to come in. He takes the initiative. He pursues both sons. So what does the brother say, the older son, to justify his anger? 
well, look what I've done and look what your, your younger son has done. I've worked for you faithfully for years and you never gave me a celebration. In fact, he doesn't even say the fattened calf. He just says a young goat, which is a more typical fare. And then he, he's critical of his brother. He doesn't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours, it's like when, you know, you're upset with one of your kids and you're just like, well, that son of yours, you tell your wife that or your, your husband, well, that son of yours, you know, he, here he says, well, that son of yours, and he even accuses him of, of hiring prostitutes. That's, that's not a proven accusation. Maybe it was insinuated, but there's no proof that that's what happened. Who does that older son sound like? The audience included these tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes, and, and probably the disciples. So this sounds like the legalism of the Pharisees and scribes. I think they would have recognized that. His legalism, his lack of mercy, sounds like one of these religious leaders. He's treating them like they treat these tax collectors. He's ostracizing his younger brother, wanting to cast him out. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the father responds to this anger by explaining how compassion is what's needed. He does show disappointment for, for the way his older son has responded. And he tells him, you had access to everything the father owns. It may actually have been a result of how he divided the property when the younger son asked for inheritance. I don't know. Um, he points out the reasons behind the joyful celebration that the younger son was, was lost and presumed dead and he was found alive. This next statement is something that was real convicting to me. It says, I said, this dialogue shows that family relationships should be based on grace and not fairness. Now, we have always been very careful to treat our kids equally, fairly, to not show favoritism toward one versus the other. And I think not showing favoritism is obviously a wise move. But grace needs to be, needs to abound in family relationships. We need to treat others with that unmerited favor that God treats us with. It also shows that 
We should value people more than possessions. The father didn't value his possessions that much. He was quite willing to to part with it. But he valued his son, even this wayward, rebellious son, so much that he throws a celebration when he returns home. The older son reveals that while he's not wayward, he's just as rebellious. He needs repentance. He's rebelling against his father's authority, his father's use of grace instead of justice. And the story ends with the older son maintaining that rebellious attitude. He's just like these religious leaders. So what are some lessons that you see from the three characters? Uh, the, The younger son is an easy one. Excuse me. When foolish, his son was foolish to do what he did, the younger son. But foolish sinners, they receive grace and forgiveness when they turn back to God in genuine repentance. God responds to repentance with grace. Then we see the father. Graces should be extended in relationships as quickly as wisdom allows. As soon as he saw his son returning, he responded with grace. That return was enough of a sign of repentance for the father that he would go out and embrace him and kiss him and throw the celebration for him. As quickly as we recognize repentance, we should respond with grace. And it expresses forgiveness and it promotes reconciliation, restoration. And then the older son, well, his issue is, he's, he's got this issue with, of pride, excuse me, pride and legalism. And they can cause you to seek justice rather than mercy and prevent us from reconciling relationships. So what are some lessons from from these parables? Um, It starts out, you know, about how building relationships with unbelievers is required to, it's the first step in evangelism. As I mentioned, people won't care what you know until they know that you care. You've got to build a relationship before they're going to recognize that you have truth to share with them. Then we saw how God values individuals. In fact, he rejoices when one receives faith. He rejoiced over the, celebrated the the one sheep, the one coin, and the, the one son. Relationships should be built on grace, not fairness, and mercy and not justice. 
I, I admit that I oftentimes am desire justice more than mercy. That I someone's sin will will have consequences for me or those around me and and I'll I want justice. I want them to be penalized when I need to be reaching out in mercy. And finally that you know we should value people more than possessions. Um, this father didn't care what he had given away that was wasted. He welcomed him, his son back. So how do we apply these things? Well, who are you building relationship with that needs to hear the gospel? We're all building relationships with other people, and some of them need to hear the gospel. Maybe it's a coworker. I was so excited last Sunday to met a, a stranger at the door, and he's like, well, "I work with Jeremy, and he invited me to church." And we we've all got people that we can we can pour our lives into. Um, when are you tempted to seek justice rather than grace and mercy? I mentioned it, you know, if somebody is, their sin has consequences for me, boy, I'm quick to, to want justice. And then finally, how is your priority of people over possessions reflected in your actions? It's easy for the way that we value possessions to be evident to others. The way we value people is also evident to them because it's, they're going to see how we treat other people. So which one is a higher priority for you? Any thoughts or questions or comments? The prodigal sons, there were two of them that were rebellious. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you that you celebrate when one individual comes to faith in Christ. You've shown us the joy that it brings you Father, help us to, to treat others with that same grace that you've shown us. Help us to recognize areas where, where we need to treat people differently that they can be drawn to Jesus Christ. Help us to not seek justice, but to seek mercy in the way we treat others. Father, thank you again for the grace that you showed us through your Son, that he would redeem us when we were lost, when we were wayward. Pray these things in, in Christ's name. Amen.